So it's not that he's like saying it's all fine. He's just saying it really is all fine. But the enacting of trying to become like Christ, that's where love happens in the Triune God in this world. And we're just broken, right? So we can do it so partially. We misread so much of what's going on. We don't see with the eyes of Jesus so much of the time. We don't speak faithfully what's really the voice of God. And he's like, I know. So come to this table and just be reminded that actually my life is the life I give you. You're listening to part two of our talk with Dr. Nordling about communion. We'll pick up in the conversation about how important the opening of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is because it sets the table for the rest of the letter, including how members of the church relate to one another. Reminder that we'll be regrouping in June and you can expect new episodes coming out again in July. Thanks to Aaron Strumpel for the music and thank you for tuning in. helping us see all of that in light of the big picture of what Paul's praying. His prayer is this, and then he's writing out what he's praying. And he just names out like the stuff like, really, you thought you were wise by the Spirit, but you can't resolve the conflict in the character and nature of Jesus. You're going to go to the Agora and let them judge between the two of you who what who took something from whom. <laughs> it's all Christ. So for heaven's sake, like, get just give it to him, right? But it's just, <laughs> right. he's basically challenging all the ways that they are still being renewed and where they're getting stuck. And so at this table, what we did, or at least in my culture when I was young, church culture, is because it was so tied to the way that we also became Christians, which was you are the agent who has to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and that will open the love valve. Jesus now can open the love valve to a wrathful father who doesn't love you, who isn't really like Jesus, until Jesus can love you on his behalf and then get him to have some love for you because you, in your agency, recognize that your sin was something that needed to be solved by Jesus, right? And and that's so crass. So I'm just going to be like really crass in these ways. But these are how our stories get to like, welcome to being a Christian. Even if you, even if that wasn't explicitly written out in doctrine or said like that, that was the culture, right? That was the feel. So I don't think anyone was not giving us the very, very best of the gospel that they knew. They were giving us the best they knew. But the way the enemy wants to play that out in the ways that we began then to enculturate them in the church is to go, wow, like you better, you better wonder whether Jesus can really keep loving you. Because if he can't, boy, God can't love you, right? And so this table had better become the place where suddenly the you became individual. And we started reading that even my pastors say, each one of you, in the ways that Paul's like, yes, each one of you all together standing in this space, examine how your life together as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as a body who builds up instead of tears down, as those who are so for the other that you're laying your life down instead of lording it over, he says, examine whether that's actually what your life looks like. And if it doesn't, 
then you do not look like the Lord who is the Lord over this table. And so go work that out. Like, ask forgiveness there. But he's not saying, you know what? This table is still like always the repeat of the transaction. And you need to go and examine. And Mike asked me sometimes when I was like seven or eight, when I was still trying to work this out of my head, he's like, honey, everybody's taken like the cup. And <laughs> but I'm like, but I might still have like one more place where I yelled at my brother. And I got to like, remember and ask forgiveness because otherwise like, I'm going to be like crucifying Christ again, or I'm going to like, you know, the stuff that gets into our heads as little children, it does not go away. Like right. that girl is this girl who's talking to you now with so much joy to go. Oh, that's not what Jesus was ever asking of me. He's saying, honey, this table has already taken care of all of them. Now, I'm really glad you're asking me about that because we already see you finished and we adore you. Like literally Jesus, our high priest has got his arms wrapped around every single one of us. And the father and the spirit are grinning from ear to ear because they're like, isn't Tim Deering gorgeous? But we knew that we've seen him before the creation of the world finished. We are not stressed about our son, Tim. Jesus says, I am not stressed about my son, Tim. my brother, Tim. In fact, I'm, I'm the priest who Hebrews 2 brings him into the presence of my father in celebration of this liturgical worship act. Like that's the second half of Hebrews 2, right? So he's like, I'm not only not ashamed of him, we have the same father. So at this family table, we know how this turns out. But the way that you get to also come and be healed from the ways in your life together, you have yet to still grow into the conformity of what it looks like to be truly human like Jesus. You have yet to still let go of the things that you still keep trucking in that Jesus just wants to kill off because they're killing you. They're killing you. And then they're killing the community because your identity is getting formed around stuff that is so transient and so meaningless. Thinking about conversations you and I have had in the past, right? Where you let those things go and go. But at this table, he's like, Chara, die to it right here at this table and let me give you your life back right here at this table and empower you by the spirit to live the life of God's people in a way that actually looks like Jesus, who understands humiliation and betrayal <laughs> and humility. And like he, under he, he can priest it all because he's experienced it all in his own life let alone on our behalf, but he knows it. I don't have to come pray and go, Lord, I'm really sorry. And kind of twist his arm to try to care about something. He's going, Chara, what do you, stop, sweetheart. He's like, what about what you're about to say? Do you think I don't know? And not because I have a divine brain who knows it. What in my story, if you actually read my story carefully, where have I not experienced something that knows precisely how to mediate that? And that's why my father has elevated me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So let, let me double down on something you're saying there, which by the end of this text in chapter 11, in, in verse 27 to 32, he's talking about when you take this meal inappropriately, you do it under your judgment. And there's consequences for that. He said, many of you are sick. Many of you are dying. What I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that when we're not living according to the culture of the table, then the, cult, then the table begins to lose its meaning and lose its value. 
and the table itself, that, that what Christ has put in place through this being the picture of his redemptive work and the culture of heaven, that when we begin to change the culture of the table, we begin to lose the value of what it brings to us. And so that washing that can happen when we come to the table and learn the table manners of God, when we learn the, the value of, of, of his family culture, that starts, if that starts to go missing, then we begin to lose the power that is possible for us. We're eating at a different table. If you want to eat and drink that life, which is actually death, it'll kill you. Right. And in that case, who knows what the physical implications were for them, but it'll kill us one way or the other. It will destroy our souls. It will destroy our relationships. It will destroy our lives to eat and drink of a world that is broken in Jesus name. The, the immediate culture there that they were engaging in. I mean, one of the things that he's Paul's praying for for them you've already framed for us, there's the divisions that are in place based on kind of celebrity worship and all of that. But we see that division manifest practically in this text in a place where some people are coming in, just jumping into the food, not waiting for other people. They're getting drunk on the wine. They're doing all of it. So their culture is very individualistic, very consumeristic. Is that right? Well, actually what they're doing is they're eating the same way they would in another temple. Ah, okay. It's an honor-shame culture. The people who have wealth get to come first. Ah. The people who have privilege get to come first. The people who are higher, like it's like it's watching Jesus. Like if we don't, if we don't understand what's going on right here, watch what happens to Jesus at the tables of the Pharisees. Where he comes and truthfully, because of who he is and just out of respect for a rabbi, they should give him a place of honor at their table because they want his honor over them in return. But they do not. They shame him every time, right? And Jesus is like, my table does not do that. And you do not get to actually come with those old order, all the stuff that you think entitles you to a normal world that actually radically excludes persons around the world, let alone in your own church and your neighborhood, I invited them. I went and found those. I ate with people who no one else would eat with in the name of Yahweh, but Yahweh sought them out and ate with them. So it's not because they got saved and got sinless and got washed that I ate with them. It's because God loves them. I love them. And I already know how I've saved the world and how I will save them. So there is Nothing you can do to open up the generosity of God. And he says, when you come to this table, you don't come to remembrance of me. You come to this table to come to me, the one who's hiding your life in God, in the heavenlies. Human life is sitting at the right hand of the Father. All that you will ever be is already held. I am this table. You are literally taking the stuff of creation eating a meal that's also happening in heaven because I'm the host, but by the spirit is joining my hosting and my remembrance of a cruciform life, which is what you're eating and drinking. That's the character of God. And so as you come, it basically just gets you realigned as children to go, oh my gosh, I've just been like whipped from every other direction by storylines that want to lay claim to who I am. And when I come to this meal, I go, oh, 
that's right. I'm a beloved child of God. And there's nothing I could do about that except to just receive it. And now he's just going, so if there are places where if all of this is already finished, if there are ways where coming to me and touching me, you also recognize in both your healing, the places where you also need forgiveness, right? Where there's still something really busted in your heart that just makes you sorrowful as you come just like, I get that. And I love that. And I too want to change that in your life. So let's walk up and talk about that. Let's enact the love of the triune God in your daily life about those things. So it's not that he's like saying, it's all fine. He's just saying, it really is all fine. But the enacting of trying to become like Christ, that's where love happens in the triune God in this world. And we're just broken, right? So we can do it so partially we misread so much of what's going on. We don't see with the eyes of Jesus so much of the time. We don't speak faithfully what's really the voice of God. And he's like, I know, I know, I know, I know you're in part. So come to this table and just be reminded that actually my life is the life I give you. And it's healed and it's whole and it's full and it's eschatologically complete. Like the fullness of God dwells in the deep. And oh, by the way, in you too, Colossians 2, right? He's like, so you've died with Christ to this old crap. You're now raised with him. So keep your eyes on him. And he's going, where do you see me best? At the table. Because this is where cruciform life that looks like Jesus for the sake of the world. This reminds you who you are as my brothers and sisters, as children of the living God, as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, that you are not afraid to participate in the fellowship of suffering with Jesus in the world. Because this table tells you it will be suffering with Jesus because he will go to the places that are most broken and he's already there. So don't be afraid of suffering in your life because this is the place where God's glory is revealed, right? This is the place, a cross weirdly becomes the place of glory. He says, come on in. This table should remind you and reinstate you in a sense or realign you or just like let you sit at the table and take a deep sigh and a big breath and go, oh, Oh, thank you, Lord, that that's, that's what's real. That's who I am. That's who we are. And all this business about trying to earn my place at your table, you already told me none of us will ever earn it. You are the righteous one who will make it possible. And it's your righteousness that we're going to come and re-clothe ourselves with when we come up and, and receive. And you come with your hands open, right, to let the Lord Say, I have nothing to give you. He goes, I know. That's the beauty of the table. The minute you think you have something that you can give, including like your self-examined, um, ask forgiveness, he goes, then Cherith, you're coming with your hands. Like, see all the stuff I said I'm sorry for? He's like, you really need to like open your hands and receive the fact that love is grace enacted. One of the repeated phrases we see, right, is he takes the bread. He breaks it. He gives thanks and breaks it. Yeah. Right. And so there's this, it starts with just receiving, giving thanks, saying thank you. I, I, I really appreciated the one thing you said is that when we come to the table, we need to, and we're aware of the fact that we're only in process and we only see in part that that's okay. And of course, that's another link that just takes us two chapters ahead to now we see through a glass dimly, then we'll see. And so there's even built into the letter here, an assumption that we're still really limited 
in what we see of God and what we see of ourselves. And this practice of coming to the Lord's table is helping us uh, learn the culture, learn more. So if we think we have to be all cleaned up before we come to the table, then it's antithetical to what the table is actually trying to accomplish, right? It's here working to help us engage the presence of God to know more fully what the gospel actually is, who Christ is, the character of God at the table. That When we sit at the dinner table night after night with our family, we get to know our family more, our parents more. So there's also something that obviously pops up here in terms of John chapter six being a place where Jesus is talking about needing to eat his flesh, drink his blood. Is there, in your mind, is there a direct link from the Lord's table to what Jesus is talking about in John chapter six? And if so, why is it that that's when all the crowds leave? There seems to be something going on about food there where Jesus is like, you guys are only here because you ate something at the feeding of the 5,000 and you wanted more of that. You just wanted food, which kind of, yeah. So what all, do you see any links or anything going on there? I think it's so powerful. I think because John is writing way after Paul and writing probably way after his apocalyptic vision, because we hear nothing about the temple destruction, which would have played large, right? Symbolically mm, in relation. Right. So, so if we're listening to John tell a gospel that looks like it's a gospel of a slain lamb, who is the lion of Judah, who is ruling and reigning over all things. This is, he's like, it's, if you don't have the ascended Jesus in your sight line all the time, you don't know who you are hmm. and you don't know who, what God is doing. And you don't know who's inviting you to be part of it. The table is about participation. Jesus life, Christian life is about participation in the life of Jesus into the life of the triune God. So when, I think when John gets to look back and then he doesn't ever have Jesus ascending like the synoptics, his ascension is the cross. When I am lifted up, which is the language of ascension, it's coronation to his enthronement and glory. Is That's what ascension means. It's not like floating in the clouds. It's like Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne and King Charles will eventually ascend to the throne next year, right? So it's like, this is coronation language. And then Paul says, now, so coming back to John in a second, but Paul says, not only have you died with him, you have also been raised with him and seated at the Father's right hand. So this is Psalm 10, 110.1 language, which is the most quoted scripture in all of the New Testament, 20 something times. They're like, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. And that is not looking backwards at Jesus' death and resurrection as some event back there. It's to look at the one who's wearing the marks of his wounds from that death into resurrected glory. He is the one who has literally brought humanity into the life of God. So we know, and John's being able to write in retrospect to say, if you want to borrow the language of Jesus that he's going to use in the Passover, it's literally that you're going to consume him. He is going to be your life. You cannot live this life without him. And so Jesus is like, you love that manna kind of thing that just happened right here. But I'm actually trying to give you back your whole life as a feast, a priestly feast and lavish fun and joy in the presence of the living God in a renewed cosmos. This little meal, I'm glad you loved it. 
And I'm glad all the markers like are going off about the fact that you should be paying attention that when I say I am and John, that something should sound familiar to the Exodus. But he's like, I have become because God alone is your life. And I am your bread and your living water. Like you cannot live apart from God because you were made by God to live with and for God. And now you know what that looks like. And it's me. But that is a cruciform love. It is a self-sacrificing love. It is a costly love that will see the other as the very life of God presented to you. And so you don't get to other them in any other way than in the one anothering way that Paul says, alone, alone, for one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, have compassion on one another. That looks like Jesus. And unless we are honestly being enveloped by him and feasting on who he is in both joy and tears because it will be a costly meal to see with him what we see out of that meal to see where the injustices still are to see where we contribute to them that when you come out of like the liturgical tradition part of the gratitude in the prayer after the great eucharistic prayer over the table is lord thank you for feeding us with through these spiritual mysteries with the body and blood of your son, because only by his life, by the spirit, can you send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. That's what we're doing at our family table is going, oh, this is who we are. And this is whose we are. And this meal is by the spirit empowering us into the very life of a self-giving God. And that takes a people to enact in the world for the world with Jesus. It is not about getting a whole bunch of individuals forgiven to be able to somehow live whatever they're gonna live for the next period of time before they take communion and then go off as souls into someplace called heaven. Like that's just not the Christian story. And the table tells us what our story is. Dr. Nordling, I get the sense that you actually believe in this stuff. <laughs> I just wanna reiterate something that kind of framed this response for our listeners. And that's that you were speaking in terms of John, who lived the longest of the, the disciples, is here at, at, at uh, very much close to the close of what we know of the, the writing of the scriptures, reflecting on all the other things that have been written, and is able to, we know from, from the writings of scripture, there's a, a almost infinite amount of things that could have been written about Jesus. So these writers are pulling out what are the things that need to be written and you're saying john is looking back and as he's writing the gospel he's intentionally pulling out this part of what jesus is saying at this message that he brings after the feeding of the five thousand, when people are really wanting more food but they're missing the point and john's doing that because he thinks we might miss the point and so he's reminding us of what jesus is actually saying that the real feast is his presence you named something at the beginning of that that said that John was saying, if you don't know the ascended Jesus, you don't know who you are, which comes to us. If we don't know the ascended Jesus, we might not know who we are. I wonder, going back to 1 Corinthians, or uh, go back to, to Corinthians in chapter 11, where it says, when we do this, when we take this bread, we are, there's two things that are happening. It says, we are doing this in remembrance of him. 
and we are proclaiming his death until he comes. So there's two things that we are actively doing that seem like they connect us back to what John's calling us to about understanding the ascended Lord. I don't know about you, as, as a young child, when I thought about this, the only thing I thought it was, was a moment to remember how bad I was. Sorry for Jesus and feel sorry for ourselves. <laughs> yes, and that, exactly. And so there was still a contractual piece of this where God would give me heaven and I would give him brokenness. Um, and, and that was the contract. And it feels like in John chapter six, we'll follow you, Jesus, and you'll feed us. You'll give us food and we'll follow you. But he's asking them to actually have relationship with him in a very different kind of way. And I feel that you're inviting us when you say the ascended Jesus, and we need to know the ascended Jesus in order to know who we are. What do you mean by that? Can you bring that together for us a little bit? We can barely get to the resurrection, right? Because as evangelicals of all these different kinds, we live such Gnostic lives that we don't take our bodies seriously and we don't take Jesus' human life seriously as still human. Like the fact that he's like shorter than me <laughs> and looks like his mom. Like that's the person who has been transfigured and glorified and he knows my mom and dad. And now my mom and dad know his mom, like, and his stepdad. Like that, that is the particularity of the body that Jesus is like, oh, don't you dare not be who you were made to be because you're going to be who you are forever. So love and honor one another in that particularity and distinction. That Jesus is the one who did not in my Christian imagination as a child, come off the flannel graph page. You're probably too young to remember flannel graph, but we would stick these paper images on flannel graph, which had like some background. And at the Ascension, Jesus like rose up off that page and like disappeared behind the flannel graph screen. And in my little head, like he dumped his body at like cloud 37 and went back to some kind of spiritual union with the father. And I would read John 17 that way all of my growing up years. Oh, Father, I can't wait to get back with you to share the glory that we had before the creation of the world. And I would read that like, oh, I too cannot wait to dump this body, which is my problem, right? Because this is the problem, is our embodied lives. But thank you, Lord, that one day we'll all just be souls in heaven. <laughs> and I'm like missing the incarnation as the center of everything, and it is destroying my life. Seriously, like, it is doing so much damage to who I am, to the relationships I'm in, because I don't know how to take, I don't know how to participate with Jesus in the, in our embodied life and suffering. So I just try to get out of my body all the time for issues of gender, for issues of suffering, for issues of I don't know what. But it's not good to be a female in this body. Thank God someday I won't be. And Jesus is going, well, actually, <laughs> we've waited for you, Jared before the creation of the world. And it's only you who doesn't know you. So how do I start to come? It, it finally begins to take that. It's not just the resurrection, which when Paul's like, like what is the, what is the, what's the hope of our salvation? He says, it's not belief in Jesus. He goes, it's the redemption of our bodies for heaven's sake. So that we can finally be like the still embodied Jesus of Nazareth, who is incarnate forever. And so we are not abstractly looking at it, some idea of Jesus, some like glorified something, something that we just want to be like the like the highest moral exemplar we could come up with. It's like 
Jesus is like, actually, I, who my father raised, because I sure as heck didn't raise myself. I was D-E-A-D, dead Jesus, dead God. That's a mystery. But my father raised me by the spirit. And he did that because that I'm the firstborn of a new creation. I'm the firstborn from among the dead. You will be like me in your renewed humanity. So when you come into this space together to keep watching, like Paul's seriously going, I met him. He's the one who knocked me off the horse. When I tell you to fix your eyes on him, I'm talking about some abstraction of some ideal. It goes, that man from Nazareth, we were dead hell-bent on killing anyone who would use his name because it was libel, right? It was heresy. It was blasphemy. I find out that this one is the one who is the Lord. <laughs> like Every single thing I thought I knew about what God was like and what I thought I was like and what all my identity was like, because everything had to be turned upside down because this one is still alive and he's still him. And so when we, by the spirit, begin to think, okay, where is Jesus inviting me today to be present with the living Jesus of Galilee and Palestine and Nazareth, who is also of heaven. Where is he already busy today in the world, loving a world that doesn't know his name necessarily, but he loves them. And he's like, would you, child who knows this meat, knows this bread and this cup, would you come and live this life, which is the only life there is, which is the life joined to God by, by me? Come with me. Can you hear me to see what I see with you today? Not everybody will see what I'm asking you to see. I'm just asking you or maybe a small community that you're part of in your larger community. But will you hear with ears that are not dead and idols, but living images of God who look like the true image of God? Will you come with me into the spaces where I am already present with my father by the spirit, still doing the will of my father <laughs> On earth as it is in heaven, only from a position of ascended glory. And by the way, when you wake up every morning, like we're like, yay, because guess what? You too have been seated. So your authority and your character and your cruciform life and you're going out to die for the sake of others today. All of this is the character and position of authority of God. And from this place, we look by the spirit. Ask me when you wake up, what are we doing today? as empowered children who sit next to our elder brother, who really is who he is. That's the Jesus who is saying, when you take this meal, you are declaring to the world. What When Paul uses that language proclamation in 11, he's not talking about words of institution for two minutes over a meal in the Sunday morning. He's saying, you are the proclamation of God in the world. So, he says, he doesn't say this body broken for you. He says, this body, which is essentially you, right? You are Christ's body. And now spend a whole bunch of time in the next chapter talking about that body. But this body slain is also your life that is to be slain for one another in the sense that you're willing to put to death your own longings and desires that keep you from loving, your own fears that keep you from being for the other if you will be with me, like me, and this meal helps us remember who we are together, then you will be my proclamation 
into the world, you will look like me. And Paul's just going to them right now. You guys do not look like him in how you're living your life together. And you're the living witness, right? They're going to think God looks like you instead of like Jesus. And Jesus has something to say about that right now. And the father has something to say, but it's such a loving word actually, which is if you guys could just remember who you are and get sort of lined back up into the life I've given you by the spirit, instead of taking it off in the places that the world wants you to be seduced by, you'll get your life back. And every day I'm just offering you your life back. And by the way, someday you're going to get your life back permanently. So you want to start practicing that now. (laughs) And I think that's really what the table again is about is we meet Jesus. And hence we meet our father in heaven and we meet the spirit of God, who is the Lord and giver of life at that table. And all three of them say, welcome. We've set this table for you before the foundations of the earth. Why? Because this one who invites you here was slain before the foundations of the earth. So you don't have to work your way here. You come running to the throne of grace as children who have been born now and eat grace who drink love embodied. This is who you are. Oh, man, this is beautiful. We, uh, as you know, Dr. Nordling, the, the, the work of Netzer that we do is uh, working at bringing the various parts of the body of Christ corporately back together, uh, relationship by relationship, ministry by ministry, you know, working at bringing us together to the table because we believe that that invitation to be embodied not only individually but corporately together embodying the the image of christ together requires reconciliation across our typical lines you unpacking all of this for us is again writing a story giving us invitation telling gospel that's allowing us to say oh this is what it means for us to step across those lines and allow christ to be the sole focus in a way that there are no divisions inside of Christ, as Paul says in this, that there's only one body. And so uh, whether whether we come to the table and it's offering forgiveness, things that we need to forgive or or places where we need to go and seek reconciliation and, and, and seek forgiveness for ourselves, there's an invitation here about the culture of what does God's family look like at this table? And I feel like you've just done an amazing amount of work on that in the last few minutes here with us. So thank you for, for uh, really, really unpacking so much of that for us. Um, we like to close our, our podcasts with inviting our guests to then just give a word of exhortation or a prayer that is for our listeners. And so if you're thinking in terms of the topic of what we've been talking through today, and you picture a, a listener who's you know in their car right now, listening to us speaking about the Lord's table, maybe they've been through some stuff, maybe things are challenging at church, maybe there's some things going on in their own culture, what word might the Holy Spirit put on your heart? for our listeners to wrap things up today? I think the first and last word always that comes from and looks like Jesus is to just say you are so beloved that the very first thing that Jesus wants to give you is the love. That is the love of our Father. That is his love between the Father and the Spirit. They they don't have a creaturely kind of love that they give to creatures. They're just God. 
in this communion of love. And so the first thing they always want us to know in a world that is going to tell us there's never enough love and that we're not lovable is that we are children beloved by a triune God. And that this table is a homecoming. And so to think about just hearing the invitation of Jesus, not to clean your act up, but to go, oh no, I cleaned it for you. (laughs) And when you come and just know your belovedness in me, it's going to make you want to participate with me and helping clean up some stuff with you so that it doesn't continue to do harm. But, But I made it possible for you to come home and you've always belonged here, always belonged here. And so as you are joined together to meet and to a people you might not even like very much, let alone love today, I am the high priest who will cleanse all of the family of God, who has already cleansed the family and will bring the healing that is on offer at this table. This is a table of healing and renewal and reconciliation, both in this moment and as a hope, a sign of hope by the spirit for what's coming. So I just pray for all those who are listening that when you come to the table next time that you also leave in the power of the spirit to say, Lord, I, I see something about myself that I didn't see because now I've been in your presence. Instead of trying to see it ahead of time to see if I could get here, I came running and you held me and you hold me. And then I just saw something that didn't look like you. And in kindness, You said, yep. And by the Spirit, you will both work that out in my life in the company of others. And I pray that you hear the compassion and the kindness and the grace and the goodness of God instead of a table of legalism and transaction that is based on the powers of this world, which I think we just got upside down at some point. And Jesus just wants you to have a different table. So come home. sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. And sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art.